Hello, everybody, and welcome to our virtual 67 Palmal. Uh, tomorrow we have an interesting day, starting with Gerhard Bertrand, who's going to be telling us all about his biodynamic wines, some great biodynamic wines that he's making down in the south of France. And then following that, I think we have, is it, I think it's part five of the 67 Big Wine Quiz, hosted by myself and the lovely Jofia from Hungary. And then following that, to ending tomorrow, we'll be talking with uh, Nahala Bahini from Domaine de Bakari in Morocco. So some interesting wines from Morocco. Um, but for now, we're very pleased to welcome back our old friend, Jasper Morris, MW, author of Inside Burgundy, who's got an amazing lineup of wines, all from the Hill of Corton, and he'll be explaining the Corton vineyards to us for tonight. So please chat away on the side, share us what you're drinking, where you're drinking it from, and put your, so put your photos on social media with hashtag 67 from home. And a big welcome to Jasper. How are you, Jasper? I'm very well, thank you, uh, Ronan. I've been uh, catching up on a bit of tasting in the... Uh, North part of the Cote Nui before they all start, but I can reveal that um, the harvest is well underway in the Cote de Bone. Okay. Cote de Bone started on Tuesday. One or two people may pick individual plots earlier than that. Uh, I know Ben Larue starting tomorrow. Dominique Lafont started today. Um, and how's the weather holding up? Because it's it's weird here. It, it's been nice and sunny. It's weird too. Yesterday. It was raining and. Yeah, we had a little bit of rain on Sunday. We haven't had the same rain that England has been having, but. Uh, there was a small bit of rain on Sunday and Wednesday, but uh, frankly, everybody's just delighted when it rains at the moment because <laughs> it's so dry. Okay. And it's a little bit of a problem, but um, yeah, uh, a few a few people are not too happy. Others others are excited. So we okay. will see. Great. All right. Well, thanks again, Jasper, for doing this. We were excited about the wines. Right, good. Um, uh, as um, Ronan said, um, keep going on the chat. Victor, I hope you've got some sound now. Uh, let us know. You said that you hadn't to begin with. Right, uh, I'm going to be very, very bold and uh, endeavour uh, to get the map up from, I think I'm going to be able to do it actually. Uh, you should now be able to see the map of the Hill of the Corson uh, without having to ask Ronan to yeah. it up. Fantastic. Yeah. Good. And, uh, and so let's have a little look. Um, my mouse is, is circulating, I hope you can see that too, but you can see pretty much, well, right in the centre of the picture, there's a little green bit, um, a lozenge-shaped green bit, and that is the forest on top of the hill of Corson, um, which is full of animals, rabbits and wild boar and other things that come down and eat the vineyards. Um, and there's a bit of a row at the moment because uh, it, it's currently in hands, which not everybody is quite sure about, we'll say. And uh, the question is, uh, could maybe the growers group together and buy it? If so, it's got to be at a reasonable price. I hasten to say buy it just for their protection, not because they want to rip the trees out and plant some vineyards up there. Then around that green lozenge, you can see, first of all, a mauve to purple colour and then uh, a slightly different um, deep pink. Uh, colour, and these are the Grand Cru vineyards of the Hill of Corton. Those which are in the paler mauve are largely, but not entirely, down to white grapes, and that's the bulk of the Corton Charlemagne Appellation, and uh, the rest of them are <clears throat> going to be in red grapes normally. If they have any white grapes in those areas, they'll still be Grand Cru, but they will be white Corton rather than Corton Charlemagne. So what we're going to do today is have a look at what Corton is, is all about. Um, and um, while we're doing that, 
have a feel for which might be the best parts, who's making really good wine, and perhaps at the end we'll add an additional poll question, which is, do you think on the whole the wines have added up to Grand Cru quality or not? Now I've chosen some pretty good producers and uh, I've selected some of my favourite uh, um, vineyards, but we're not going to cover everything. So <clears throat> we could say that the absolute heart of um, Coton is Le Clos du Bois here, and then we can go this way, Perrier, Greve, certainly um, Bressande, and probably around to Virgin, uh, Renier, Coton, Renard. That's probably the absolute heartland. But there is more to it than that, because people kept adding. Now, unfortunately, the result is that people don't think very highly of Coton, because there's too much of it, which probably isn't worth Grand Cru, even in the hands of a very good producer. And that therefore has rather diminished the image of Corton. It's also kept the price down. So frankly, there's an awful lot of Corton that sells um, less expensively or no more than the same price as a premier crew, good premier crew Pomar or Volney. Um, so I think this hill of Corton would have been better valued had it been uh, rather more strictly called in terms of what's Grand Cru and what's not. But when they came to decide in the 1930s what would be Grand Cru, pretty much anybody who was able to prove that they had been selling their wine from their plot as Corton uh, got away with it. There were additions later, and that's the thing I find more difficult to understand, is when it was already perhaps a little bit debatable, they added more. So, I think I'm right in saying that all the wines we're going to taste tonight come within that circle that I've drawn. So what about the bits that are outside it? Um, so if we look, I'm just going to change my annotation tool to up here on Charlemagne, there and there, Le Charlemagne, there and there, it's pretty much all white. There are a couple of patches of red, Bonnie de Martre red uh, Corton is in this area and they make a really really nice wine out of it but it's hard to say that it definitely has to be a Grand Cru character. Le Chaume down here, I've had some nice examples of especially some very old wine, uh, vines. Les May, uh, Combe, all these things, yeah, Fietre, uh, Chaume and Chaume Voiros. Um, there's nothing much there that really speaks of Grand Cru. Again, I just want to emphasize that I'm not trying to um, belittle the people making the wines from there, or even I'm not saying that they're not good wines, but do they have the extra muscle intensity, um, sheer high class that you think a Grand Cru ought to have? And there's one I didn't touch, which I'm just going to touch now, called La Vigno Sainte. And for the longest time, the only version one really saw was Louis Latour's Claude La Vigno Sainte. And then one of the two domain Bellons from Sontenay sold up and uh, they sold two plots. One went to uh, Jean-Nicolas Mayo, Mayo Camusset, and one went to David Croix, Domaine des Croix. And both of them also got a little bit over here. Uh, one of them got Greve, that was David Croix, and one of them got Perrier, that was um, Jean-Nicolas Mayo. And they both expected their Greve and their Perrier to be much better than, the Claude, uh, than their Vino Sainte. And they were pleasantly surprised in 2009, the first vintage, because there was a class and an elegance in the Vino Sainte, uh, whereas the tannins were really quite gruff 
uh, early on in the Grev and the Perrier. So that wasn't quite what they expected, but it still would be borderline for Grand Cru. And the other area where are the, the Murat and Moutot, Moutot and Murat. Uh, Moutot here uh, and Oten Bas Murat. Um, also Marichaud, actually you can have some really nice wines from Marichaud, but it is quite low on the slope here. These are all discussable or arguably not really Grand Cru, despite the fact that there can be some really, really beautiful wines from them. So we are going to um, concentrate on the original bit that I drew and uh, look at half a dozen wines, five of which are from specific named uh, vineyards and one is a blend, but I thought you wouldn't mind having a blend given that it comes from Domaine La Romani Conti. Good, okay, so an ancient, uh, ancient hillside and uh, uh, we can start, I think, with the first wine, which is Les Bressondes. Uh, so that is, I'm just going to change my annotation tool. I don't know exactly where within Bresson, I beg your pardon, I didn't mean to do that one. Clear that. Give it a heart. Les Bressondes, there. Um, and just listen to that name, Bressondes, it, it caresses. Uh, and the wine is like that too. Um, it, so we're at mid-slope here. Um, it's a, it's a Decent slope, but, but not enormously steep. Uh, beginning to get a little bit of topsoil. And uh, so you're getting a wine which normally is uh, very stylish, very suave, quite supple, uh, with a bit of weight, but um, not one of the big bulky tannic cortons. Corton isn't just one single style of wine by any means. Right. I'm going to unpop my sample. If you're uh, back home and uh, not got the range of wines, then do also tell us what you're drinking. I hope it's something from the hillside. So this is a uh, domain Chandon de Briaille, who are third or fourth uh, biggest in all, I suspect. And you draw up a little table of who's got what of tonight's vineyards. So Bresson is, is a relatively big one, that's sort of 17 hectares. So arguably what they could have done at the start is say, okay, Claude and Bresson and one or two others are Grand Cru's in their own right, and the rest of you stay as Premier Cru. So the biggest holder of Bresson is Louis de Tour. The second biggest is the Hospice de Bone, but it gets split between several different cubos. And third biggest with 1.45 hectares is Chandon de Briaille. So there is a connection here between the Merton Chandon Chandons, and they live in, I think, the most beautiful house in Burgundy, in Sauvignon Bone. Uh, it's late 17th century, I think. It's just perfectly to scale. It's sort of ornate and interesting without uh, being in any way over the top. And it's a lived-in house. It's just, it's, it's, it's really lovely. And you know, if, if wine could actually fulfill those descriptions I've just given of the house, then, then it's, doing, it's doing very well. So I'll stop sharing for a minute, then I can catch up and see what you're all saying on the, um, uh, on the chat. Okay, Alex, I've just seen your comment about zooming on the map. I will do that when we go back to the map. So what's interesting is that three of the six wines tonight are made with people who like to use at least a proportion 
of uh, whole bunches in their vinification, and three are not. Uh, what we haven't yet done is talk at all about the 2014 vintage, and um, that's uh, a year which is, of course, better known for its white wines. The reds, particularly the further north you got, suffered a little bit from the, uh, the drosophile, the, the vinegar fruit fly, um, which caused a little bit of rot, and uh, the people who would typically be um, harvesting later, i.e. Cote de Nuit, suffered more than the Cote de Bone. The other thing that happened in the Cote de Bone was that there were some quite big uh, hailstorms uh, all around the place, but actually the hill of Corton was almost entirely spared. Uh, it was uh, Volney got it in the neck, uh, as always, poor old Volney, and one or two other villages, but um, it didn't really affect Corton, and nor much did the vinegar fly, so uh, the hill escaped the two uh, nasties of the year. And uh, I felt it was a decent vintage to choose. I believe all the wines are 2014, and we thought it would be useful to stay in the same vintage. And it's a vintage that's quite accessible, um, which I think is, is probably good news. And um, uh, also, it's, I mean, it's, it's obviously not mature yet at six years old, but it should be showing enough for us to get to see what's, what's going on. So, um, uh, Chandon de Briaille. This is an old uh, domain. It's now uh, François, de, uh, the, the family now are called de Nicolai, um, but uh, I think it's the same family that's continued through and just going through the female line at one point uh, to cause the name change. But it's François de Nicolai and his sister Claude, who are the, uh, the main people here. And Claude, for interest, is married to uh, Frédéric Drouin, who runs the Drouin show nowadays. So it's all organic, biodynamic. They had a couple of very tricky vintages, 2007, 2008, when they moved to biodynamics and either they weren't quite on top of it or their vineyards weren't ready for it, but uh, they had some issues then. They fought back, they had the courage to continue. Uh, and since then, they have been on a roll and I think getting more and more interesting. They're trying to use less and less sulfur in the vineyards. Um, people talk about sulfur in the wines, they're using less in the vineyards. They used to use no new oak at all, but they've got rid of um, the really old barrels, which perhaps weren't quite doing the job. It's still minimal amount of new oak, but the barrels are a little bit younger and a little bit cleaner uh, than they were before. So um, I'm not sure in 2014 exactly how much, but the Grand Cru's typically have more of the whole bunch than uh, the rest of it. And quite often these are lightish colored wines, but this has got a fair depth to it. Actually, um, part of their Bressant holding, when they came to replant it, the um, nursery let them down with the cuttings they're expected to replant a little bit of their Chaume and a bit of their Bressant and sent them Chardonnay instead of Pinot. So they said, what the hell, we'll go ahead with it. So they now make an interesting Corson Blanc um, that comes from mostly Bressant and a bit from Chaume, um, as well as their better known uh, red wines. So, uh, um, at the moment, I'm actually not getting a, a massive amount of um, bouquet off this wine. I don't know if any of you out there are, are, are getting a little bit more. You know, sniffing, sniffing away, but I'm not uh, getting, getting the bouquet uh, too much at the moment. 
Hang on, I'm just going to turn my email off so we don't get the noise of that, done that. Incoming traffic. It's a very elegant, stylish wine. Not massively weighty. The old epithet fine-boned comes into play. Um, uh, but it's got, a, it's got a fair intensity. It's got a length of, um, of flavor, but um, medium depth. And what I've done, in fact, is I have um, sort of ordered the vineyards in what I would expect to be uh, increasing power. I may not have called it right every time, but that's the idea. I've done that by vineyard rather than doing it by producer, uh, because then I don't want to say, I don't want to suggest that one producer might be better than another. So it's not that I think that De Monti is even better than Domaine de la Romani Conti. Maybe the case, who knows? Um, that I put uh, De Monti last after, after DRC. Interestingly, the characteristic of Bresson in both villages that have um, a Bresson vineyard, Alas Coton and Beaune, is quite similar, even though theoretically uh, the name comes from different sources. So um, the Bresson either comes from um, um, people, ladies who came from the area of Bress, and there would be Bresson would be the adjective from people like that, or there was um, uh, a cleric uh, whose name was Bresson. And I think the bone refers to the cleric and the Corson one refers to the spinsters. So, um, this is one of the more graceful uh, cortons. I remember Philippe Senard once said to me that, it, that he felt it had the, uh, does have some muscle, but it's the sinews of a ballet dancer. And uh, he refers to it as the queen of corton. Well, I mean, these days we're not supposed to do too much of the uh, masculine, feminine uh, characterizations of vineyards, but let's say that it is one of the more uh, elegant expressions. Okay, so let me, Share again, up we come again. Right, let me see if I can zoom in a little bit. If that's better, you will, well, we don't need the top end. There we go. Incidentally, when I talked about it before, these uh, vineyards over in Ladois, the Murots and the Moutots, these were the ones which got, here's Moutot down here, and Grand Lollier, these were the vineyards that got added in 1978 as also uh, around about that time, on Charlemagne, the Corson Charlemagne Grand Cru got extended a little bit further around in that northwest corner. Good, if you're all still following, I hope so. We're gonna to go to wine number two. Uh, so we've now moved around to Les Pouget, which is actually just fractionally outside my uh, uh, original um, area, but now we're purely uh, south facing and um, is Le Pouget, bang. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's in the sort of the white color simply because it can be caught on Charlemagne like Le Longuet, but traditionally in the past, Le Pouget was much more red. Uh, that's changing a bit now as, as people are uh, grafting over or replanting. So for example, Etienne de Monti had some Corson Pouget red and, uh, and decided that, uh, um, it wasn't successful enough. Uh, certainly I, as a, one of his uh, importers, declined to buy it from him. So he top grafted the vineyard 
um, which is when you leave the vines in the ground, but you snip off the upper part and put in place, um, insert a little graft of a different um, type of vine. So he, he, put, uh, he put Chardonnay in instead of his Pinot. So the main uh, producers of Bouget these days are uh, Jadot, and it's one of their really classic wines. Um, I remember the Charles Boathouse restaurant in Oxford, the 69 uh, Bouget was on the list for the longest time, and, uh, and we made, made good use of it. Um, and the other one is um, Vincent Rappé, Romain uh, Breland Rappé as well as Romain Rappé Pierre Fils uh, nowadays. So absolutely due south. If you do have um, Chardonnay here, for example, Patrick Chevillier's Coton Chardonnay is here, you've really got to get in there and pick it early. So you might even pick it two or three weeks earlier than uh, a Coton Chardonnay that's around here at the top of Ange Chardonnay on the other side. Um, so anyway, here we are in the Puget, and I hope now that that's a, a big enough scale for you to be able to see it clearly. Um, and I better pour myself some. So it's a very sunny site, and Shadow like to make quite punchy wines because uh, they're not afraid of extraction, they're not afraid of temperatures rising quite high, they don't do whole bunches, um, and you know, their style of wine you could say is quite muscular and I think needs to be kept for, for quite a long time, um, certainly in the um, Jacques Ladier days uh, I would have said that this would needed to be a 20-25 year wine. Uh, and uh, with uh, Fred Barnier, who's taken over, the wines are perhaps a little bit more accessible younger, but they haven't really lost, I think, their, their ability to age well. So this is a domain wine from the part of their domain that they call Les Aritiers de Vigero. Mm. And already it's a slightly darker color. There's quite a bit more bouquet. Um, it's a denser, darker fruit than the Bressand was. Now, partly that's going to be the winemaking and the fact that they're not using stems, and partly um, it could be also characteristic of uh, Pouget, which is a mix of classic limestone. There's also getting a little bit of marl. You've got the band of marl that runs around the, um, uh, the top here, that's up, that, but you're also probably getting some of that in, uh, in Pouget as well. A little bit of downwash of the marl that's above. If you look at the vineyards, you can see that that top band and also the um, Charlemagne area are on the whole lighter coloured vineyards than these chaps down here, where you can see that the soil is a much um, deeper reddish brown. Uh, we'll, we'll come on to that a little bit later on as we look at those wines. So when we had this wine in our blind Bergfest tasting, um, 2014s we'd have done in the summer of 2017, um, then this wine came out fine, but sort of in the middle of the pack, um, 91 points. And I felt my criticism was that I felt that in its very young stage, the oak was too intrusive. I'm still tasting a fair amount of oak there, uh, but not, I think, um, too much of it. Hmm. Away from that, so I can check and see what you're saying. Um, 
Victor, I did explain a little bit the different colors uh, on the map uh, because the area which is Grand Cru but with a predominance of white is in one color and the area which is Grand Cru but a predominance of red is uh, in the slightly darker color. So I hope that answers. Um, okay, and in fact, we just had a question about the difference in the soils. Uh, and yeah, as we go around, I'll talk more about the individual soils and individual places. Um, but yes, uh, there is that, that band of mile around the top is, is probably the key factor on the soil front. Right, any questions about, uh, about those two? Okay, let me move then on to the third wine, and um, the description is um, almost almost correct, but not quite. I'm just going to tell you, I'm just looking at the bottles, because if you have the sample bottles, you'll see in very, very small writing on the bottom right, tells you what the alcohol levels are, and the first three, the first four, the first five all claim to be 13. Right, so, um, yes, Alistair, you're right. We have got a quiet bunch tonight. Do liven the chat up uh, as much as you feel like, uh, as long as it doesn't uh, prevent you from filling out all the cortal knowledge that together we can, we can find. So this is an unusual name. Um, on my sample, it's labeled as Claude Coton Monopole, but in fact, its full name is Coton, Claude Coton Fauvelet. And there's a lovely story behind this. So the Fauvelet family bought the vineyard in 1874 from a company called Geisweiler, who were still around in St. George, I think, um, when I was starting out. I can remember their bottlings in the 70s, but um, they seem to have disappeared from the scene uh, now. And uh, so um, Fauvelet bought this big patch of land and it was described as Claude Corton. So uh, at a subsequent point, the authorities said, why are you calling that Claude Corton? Because there are plenty of other people within Corton who've got individual clothes, and we don't think you should be allowed to. Favely went back to them and said, look, it was in the deeds when we bought it. It was part of the reason that we paid the price that we paid to have something called Claude Corton, as well as us thinking it's a special site. Uh, and you can't take it away from us now. So the final legal decision was that they could use Claude Corton, but they had to specify that it was their own Claude Corton, so they had to call it Claude Corton Fauvelet. So that became its official name, and that's absolutely wonderful if the authorities insist on doing your marketing for you and uh, making sure that uh, you get your name on it. So, so that's very good news. And let's show you that uh, on the map. Um, okay, so it is... Um, it's a little tricky to see because it's within Le Rognier et Corton. Um, sorry, I'm looking at the map and I don't think I've remembered to share it with you. I apologize. Share screen, zap, share, here we go. So uh, it's this area here. Where's my, ah, my screen went dead for a second, but I hope that didn't affect you. Um, Ronan, you may need to help me here. It's um, yeah, we, we can see everything, Jasper. What's uh, what's the matter? Can you? Yeah, we can see uh, it, 
it keeps saying, please move this window away from the shared application. Play <laughs> something. Uh, I knew it was too much, too, too big a risk for me to be Try stop sharing the screen and then restart it, see if that works. Okay, try to. Or I can share it, it's up to you. Uh, right, for the moment, uh, stop share. Okay, I'm back. Will you share it? Yeah. Apologies, team, for uh, confrontation for a minute. We'll be back with you in a second. Here it comes, request remote control, request, annotate. Uh, can we, we might need a little bit more. Can you, um, what do you call it? Um, make it a little bit larger. Uh, I can zoom in, yeah. yeah. Just Would have you? to stop it again and... Um, Drink you want it zooming in just on, this? okay. Let me um, just, uh, if you know any jokes, Jasper, now is the time. Now is the time for it. I've <laughs> been telling, the, telling all the, the, the Favely, um, uh, Claude Coton um, stuff. Oh, I have discovered something. Um, that Jeddo wine, I'm always loved looking at their website because they have some food and wine matching and they're really ambitious. And so here are the uh, foods that they suggest would go very nicely with their Coton Pouget. Uh, grilled red tuna, beef tataki, terrines of uh, rabbit and pork, moussaka, uh, cow's liver, uh, fondue bourguignon, steak tartare, uh, roast veal, um, veal cutlets, salad of um, duck breast, guinea fowl roasted in the oven, or hard crust cheeses. I think that's rather fun to have uh, quite, quite that range of wines, all for one wine. Aha! Good, 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 good. Okay, um, I'm now going to annotate. Uh, so it's um, uh, this part here, basically, uh, is going to be the, uh, it's in uh, Le Rognier et Coton. Why it's called Rognier et Coton, people argue about, we're gonna have it as a part of the next wine as well in the Clos Rognier. Um, but Rognier is a word that in wine terms or vineyard terms, you use to mean that you're hedging, you're cutting. And there's a theory that this bit of vineyard was cut off from Alors Corton in order to be given to Ladois so that Ladois could have some top vineyards, uh, Grand Cru vineyards, but it doesn't quite work because at the time they sorted out what was Alors Corton and what was Ladois um, was long before they sorted out Grand Cru. So I don't quite buy that. But the sort of the idea is that this bit has been cut off from uh, uh, the rest and put into a, a, a different commune. Uh, but anyway, the Clos des Cotons Favelé is this part. And uh, if you read uh, the books, it will tell you that it's three hectares, 3.02 hectares. But it will say something different in the uh, next edition of um, uh, my book because uh, they have taken out a little bit of... Their white Coton Charlemagne is above it, uh, uh, up here. And they've actually taken out a little bit of the Clos des Cotons Favelé uh, to make... Uh, uh, a slightly larger amount of Corton Charlemagne. So they have now it's down to 2.76 hectares, but that's still a pretty big holding of uh, one solid bit of Grand Cru. Uh, quite old vines here. The oldest patch goes back to 1932, but otherwise it's 50s and 70s and 80s. Um, but uh, you know, overall, these are decent age of vines. And uh, I did a very nice um, 
uh, vertical tasting of the Corson Fleur de Corson Fleurly uh, with them uh, a year or two back, and uh, and the 2014 uh, really came out very well. Uh, in that. It's still still a bit too young. Um, the soil is different up at the top, which is one of the reasons they were happy to move that bit over to white um, compared to how it is um, below. Uh, it's much more, it's on a deep red soil below, which really gives this wine uh, the body which it has. Um, and there's a lot of iron oxide, um, whereas higher up, it's more in limestone, less in uh, clay, less in iron oxide, and is almost directly on the rock further up. So what they do is, in fact, they take their different sectors of this vineyard they make them separately and uh, they blend them all together. And um, though nowadays Favre do use a certain amount of whole bunches, not in this wine. They don't think the terroir here suits itself. It's suited to whole bunches. So this is modern Favre, remembering that pre-2007, uh, the wines were made in quite a tough and tannic style, which were not friendly at all when young. Really good in, in tasting from barrel. But then by the time they were bottled, they went into their shells and took a long, long time to emerge and always had some quite tough tannins. So from 2007, they really lightened up. The wines became much uh, softer and fruitier and floral. From around about 2011, they thought maybe we've gone a tiny bit too far. We let the pendulum swing too much. And they've begun to reintroduce a little bit more structure into the wines, which I think is a, a good thing and is also intelligent of them to realize. And uh, one thing that um, the Favely family are not is stupid. They, they put an awful lot of thought into what they do. Um, they've mostly changed the names on the label from um, uh, Joseph Favely to Domain Favely because a huge amount of their produce is their own domain. If it says Joseph still, then that means it's, it's um, bought in grapes. Hmm. So this wine, incidentally, um, the Shadow wine just had um, no more than a third of new oak. This wine has got 50% new barrel, but maybe doesn't, doesn't show it um, so much. It's, it's really quite a, a stylish wine. Uh, it always has a core of intensity to it, but I'm, I'm, I'm finding the nose quite stylish. When we had this in our Bergfest tasting, the same tasting that we had the Bouget from Shadow, uh, I said there's greater concentration on fruit on the nose, tractor weight behind, some firm tannins, muscular backward and perhaps deserving a higher score, gave it 90 later on. The tannins are definitely present at the back, but the fruit is a bit more uh, uh, accessible. So both this and the Bouget, I wouldn't really want to start drinking before another five years, okay? I mean, you know, I, I like my wines older than many people do, but this is a pretty high quality wine for me. And I think I underrated it on that particular occasion, particularly blind tasting. Mm. Yep. And uh, Julian and Alistair are having a nice little chat there. Please do feel free, the rest of you, to join in. Uh, yeah. Lovely. Okay, so we're going to stay in the same area. Um, I don't know, unfortunately, exactly where. It's another little clos, and it's called the Clos Ronnier. Um, and so we'll just give it a star there. 
uh, it's within that sector, but I can't be exactly precise. Um, and this of the, I think, three cotons that uh, May Clamuse make uh, would be their star. Um, a, it's really well placed, and um, B, they have ancient vines here, um, planted in the, in the early 1920s. I don't have an exact year, so that means that they're plants coming up to 100 years old. And the odd thing at the moment in Burgundy is that the really old vines seem to be resisting extremely well. Um, whereas the younger vines are the problematic ones and having to be replaced. All right, Ian's putting the Puget ahead of the Faveli at, at the moment. The fruit of the Faveli is more accessible of the two to me, but the structure uh, means it definitely needs um, quite a lot of time. And Ian, I agree with you on tonight's showing that the uh, Chandon de Briaille, I wasn't quite getting what I'd hoped to get. I thought the wine was going to be uh, a livelier, purer style than that, didn't quite show. Okay. What should we do next? Well, we're gonna do the Corson run units, right? Point number four, just uh, clear a glass. Reminder that the French like to um, put equal stress on each syllable, so Corton. In England, we'd be more likely to say Corton, a bit more stress up front, and in the US, it comes out as Corton a lot of the time. Corton Le Ronnier, or Clos Ronnier, from Meu Camusé. Jean-Nicolas Meu. It's interesting, actually, and it's probably going to be good for the reputation of Corton, um, uh, is that several people in the uh, Cote de Nuit have now got good holdings. So Meu Camusé with his three or four different uh, cotons, uh, Domaine La Voucherie with a very good bottling of Corton Clos du Bois, um, Fauvelet we just mentioned, and of course uh, Domaine La Romani Conti coming up. So uh, it's not going to do, um, the, the snobs who only go and taste in the Cote de Nuit are still going to get a decent base of Right. Okay. Um, aha. Uh, I've had questions about temperature variations on the Corton Hill and the vintages in Corton. I'll come on to both of those. I think while we've got, I've just poured this wine, I think we'll talk about this wine first. Um, right. So, Meu Camusé. Um, obviously, people connect the name very much with uh, Orange. Uh, because Henri Joyer was their man, worked for them. Um, and however, Jean-Nicolas Mayo is not afraid to have, go his own way. The broad branch of what they do follows on in the same general lines. Um, uh, plenty of new oak and de-stemming. But curiously, they have started to use stems in a couple of cuvées uh, just recently. Uh, I think partly to prove that they can but partly because Sean Leclerc can make an argument that those couple of vineyards uh, it's suited to. Um, but it, in general, uh, things continue to be uh, de-stemmed there. So it's just um, 0.45 um, of a, a hectare, so it's actually the smallest uh, that we've had so far. The soil here um, is, is we're, we're still in the iron rich uh, reddish um, clay, uh, clay limestone, but plenty of clay, plenty of iron oxide. 
Mm. Slightly the deepest in colour so far. Definitely a strong oak influence. And I'm reminded of back in the 80s when Mary Camusot first started getting shipped around the world and people started making a fuss about it. I was one of the people who denigrated the wines by saying, there's too much oak, there's too much extraction, these wines won't age well. And then I was lucky enough to be invited to a vertical of the Mary Camusot Richebourg, which Jean-Nicolas came to as well, but it was a, a collector from Hong Kong had uh, brought the uh, bottles over and we tasted them here in Burgundy. And uh, I had to take my hat off to Jean-Nicolas. Oh. I owned up and uh, um, watch. Right? We're, we're getting some interruption from, uh, okay. from the side. R Ronan, we can hear you. Um, um, okay, so uh, I had to apologize and say, look, I was one of the people who, who doubted what you were doing. Uh, but frankly, when we see that the wine is 15 and 20 years, uh, actually, they work um, really, really well. <laughs> Thank you, Rude Alistair. <laughs> uh, good. Uh, it is definitely the most intense wine so far. It's got that sort of rich, uh, hedonistic glossiness, which um, people associate more with Vaudreuil Romanet and the Cote de Nuit, uh, and indeed with the Mary Clemenceau style. Um, does it feel uh, as much courtant-y as the others? Um, that's hard to say, because I don't think we get really defined a style. There certainly isn't a fruit flavour style. Um, so uh, two questions. Let's go back to those questions before we move on to the next wine. Uh, one was about vintages in Corton, okay, and the other is about temperature variation. I can actually blend those two questions together. Uh, so first of all we'll talk about the temperature variations. Um, and hang on, I'll get rid of the question and answer. Doing one second. I need to stop annotating. Let's try now. Right. Um, so, in terms of temperature, it depends where you are on the hill, and also um, uh, uh, how uh, your your altitude. So, if we start up here, we are um, west facing, even a little bit northwest. But more importantly, we've got two different valleys. One you can see uh, coming down where it says En Chaniard, uh, coming down there. Um, and I will, I will re-annotate. So you've got one airstream coming down here, and the other airstream is coming off the map that's been coming down from there, going up to the Haute-Côte and Chevron. Uh, so this area is that little bit cooler, even though obviously the west facing uh, gives you the evening sunlight, which is theoretically warmer. Up around here, you've got cool air circulating. So you're going to be a couple of degrees cooler up here than you are down here in the foot of the valley. Um, here, you're pure south facing and you're mid slope. So this area here is going to be pretty warm. Um, so uh, those are the broad speaking temperature things. Um, and then in terms of vintages, um, Corton, um, Alot's Corton in particular, so including the Premier Crew and the Village Vineyards, and much of Corton, is actually enjoying the, the global warming, because wherever you have um, appellations with quite firm tannins, even rustic tannins, that's normally caused by um, too much water retention in the soil, 
the water retention privileges the growth of the leaves and less um, the uh, development of the grapes. So you have not quite ripe tannins. Now in these warmer and drier periods, those vineyards are drying out, be it Pommard, be it Alox-Corton, be it Fissin, uh, where I was this morning, and you're losing those slightly raw tannins in the wines. So they're probably 18s and 19s uh, doing well. Um, 17 was attractive enough. 16 is interesting. 16 was the year of the big frosts. And absolutely clearly, you got, uh, well, there are the frosts happened for two reasons. Partially the frosts happened because of direct sunlight in the east facing, facing vineyards, so these chaps over here. Uh, direct sunlight, uh, first thing in the morning as the sun rose, on top of grapes and vines, which were not grapes at that point, vines, which were just a little bit below freezing, and basically it burnt them. So that was what was typical up and down the coast. You also got a more classical type of frost where it's just currents of cold air. So they came down here and down there. So you actually got a double whammy. These vineyards here were getting both lots of uh, cold air, uh, and they really, really suffered. So. Uh, it went on in Southern Livonne as well, but the bottom, this part of Tannon and bits of um, Charlemagne, Corton Charlemagne, uh, and less so around here. But those bits really suffered. And at the University of Dijon, the leading uh, researcher produced a learned paper of 15 pages with lots of graphs and pictures and this, that, and the other. And his conclusion at the end of it was that the Parts of the, because they have lots of um, weather stations all around, so they can actually measure where the temperatures were. And his conclusion was that the bits of the hillside where the temperature was colder suffered worse from the frost. So that's what we pay our leading academics to tell us, minding limps of the obvious. Um, uh, before that, 15's uh, very good, a richer style, of course. 14 we're tasting now, and it's pure and it's elegant, but it's not the most massive by any reason, by any uh, imagination. 13 got really badly hit by hail. Uh, suddenly Le Bon, Pernon, Corton, uh, that was probably the worst sector for the hail in 13. And there was hail again in 12. Um, don't have a particular memory of 11. I don't think Corton stood out. Uh, but 10 and actually nine was, was, was very good in, in Corton, but the nines will require a bit more time. So that's a, a little bit of a, of a, of a vertical chat. Right, on we go, um, and let us um, then examine, haven't got too much time left, so what is this? A Corton without a vineyard name. The reason is it's a blend of three. Uh, I think they are making them apart and then blending them quite early on. I can't actually guarantee that. Um, but of course, it's to mend the Romani Conti, so it's made in the classic Romani Conti style, except that when they started making them in 2009, up to and including 14, they uh, reduced, compared to their other vineyards, they reduced the amount of whole bunches. So they used no more than 50% whole bunch and no more than 50% new wood. Partly they were finding out what it could take, and partly they wanted to get the vineyards into the order that they liked, um, and so on. Now, they've got three plots. They have uh, Claude du Bois. Go back and uh, hit the annotation buttons again. They have Claude du Bois. 
have you handed back to me um, or have you got control, Ronan? You've probably got control. I think you've still got control. All right. Let me try. Oh, I see what I've done. I put the star. I keep forgetting the stars only come out in gold and therefore you can't really see them. So I'll go back to heart. They have Clue du uh, of which they've got uh, half a hectare, 0.57. They have uh, Renard of also half a hectare, 0.51. And they have Bresson as the biggest bit uh, with nearly two hectares, 1.94. Now, all these come uh, uh, on lease from um, the late uh, Prince de Merode. Uh, his brother-in-law was a distinguished gentleman from another viticultural region. His name is Alexandre de la Salusse, formerly at Chateau Iquem. Uh, and he got in touch with his mate, Aubert de Villene, saying, if you're interested in expanding outside von Romane, then how about this? So the Prince de Road actually had lots of different um, Courton and other vineyards, but Pomar too. Um, and more recently, most of the others have gone to the Chateau de Mercer, uh, but initially, those three vineyards, which would be the top three for the hillside of Corson, um, have gone to Domaine de Romney Conti. Now, the thing is that some of the vines are extremely good condition and some older vines, but some of them, particularly the younger vines, had much less good um, uh, plant material, uh, in particular the Clodiois and the Renard, and they haven't included that plant material in the final blend. It gets sold off um, uh, in bulk. Uh, but what they've done in the Claude Uwa, which is quite interesting, if you remember that I said de Monti had top grafted his Les Pouget over from being Pinot Noir to Cousin Charlemagne, to Chardonnay therefore, uh, in the Claude Uwa, what uh, the Mela Romani Conti have done is they've top grafted an indifferent Pinot clone, got rid of that, and in its place, they put a high quality Pinot clone. Um, and I know that Christophe Rumier was thinking of doing that in his new bit of Escher, so I don't know if he's done it or not. Um, should have asked him, I bumped into, I was driving along, and I saw him uh, just taking a sample of the grapes in his new plot of Escher, so he walked in the vineyards for a few minutes, he could show me which was his bit, and which was Arno Maltese. Sorry, that's a digression. Um, so anyway, um, and last summer it must have been, uh, I did a vertical tasting of the Cortons uh, at the Medler Romani Conti, uh, in a small group, and we got them all out, um, except 2010, because Aubert de Villain didn't, couldn't find any samples left of that. We had the 09, and then 11 onwards, and we did the wines from oldest to youngest, so that we could see the progression. And it's true that when I first tasted the Corton 09, it didn't feel like a Domaine de la Romney Conti wine. It was a very nice wine, but it sort of kept its own character, and it hadn't yet joined the team. By the time I tasted the 10 in barrel, I thought it had, and increasingly uh, thereafter. So um, the, the, the 14, what was my um, note on the 14 at the time? Um, I do remember uh, liking it uh, very much. Uh, it was certainly my preferred wine of them all. Um, picked on the 16th of September. Um, absolutely caresses the palate, dancing little fruits, alpine strawberries, which things like those alpine strawberries, that's more to do with the vinification with the whole bunches. Touch of light raspberry, really graceful, gracious, very long, smart winemaking, good balance of sugar and phenolic ripeness, silky tannins, still really pretty when revisited, even after revisiting it, having tasted the 2015. So, so uh, I was very positive. Uh, and now we can taste it again. Those of you who signed up for the tasting part. 
So this is number two of our three whole bunch rhymes. Uh, that tasting no Talisman no was not tasted blind, that was a vertical tasting at the, at the winery, seeing what was what. Personally, I really enjoy the whole bunch style and not everybody does. Um, I have arguments with some of my colleagues who when tasting the wines young uh, in our blind tastings, uh, mark them down because they say it's a bit dry and if it's dry as a young wine, it will only get drier. But the opposite is the case. If you taste mature Dujax or other people's you use lots of whole bunch, uh, what was quite dry, even occasionally herbaceous and astringent in youth, becomes delicate rose petals and much, much more uh, sweeter floral style later on. Yum. Feels rude to spit out a Romani Conti wine. Not that you'll have noticed me spitting any of the wines out. Um, mm. Yes. Yes, Alistair saying uh, 2009 is a vintage of 50 year wines. I said last week, absolutely. I do think that's going to last a long, long time. Mm. Mm. The oak's still uh, present at the moment. I never mind if oak is present in a young wine, as long as um, I don't feel that it's dried the fruit in any way. Uh, if it's just there as a component alongside, that is probably going to integrate much later on. So how many years to go before we, uh, before this is, is really ready? I mean, it depends what your definition is. I think 2014 is a vintage that can drink well reasonably young. So I'm going to put this, I'm going to, I'm going to say, for most of these wines, probably better to keep them three to five years. And then certain wines, those with stronger tannins, uh, will last a lot longer than that. So for example, um, Jeanne and the Favely, I'm probably going to uh, make the starting point more than five years time. And um, I mean, they're, they're going to be absolutely fine at 20 years old, but they're not really long term wines. So uh, you know, I wouldn't be looking to keep them uh, well, at my age, I certainly wouldn't be looking to keep them uh, uh, beyond, much beyond that. Um, this sort of wine here is deceptive um, because of its graciousness, gracefulness as well. It doesn't show the tannins very strongly. The tannins will be present if you could measure them. I'm sure that they would show roughly comparable to the other wines. Uh, but the volume of fruit is covering it really very nicely. Mm. Possibly they will separate out um, du Wire later on and make a separate bottling. Uh, they say they might do that. My guess is they won't, simply because if you look at the list of Renda Romani Conti wines, apart from Romani Conti itself, most of them are in big volumes. So you've got um, five hectares of Echazo, you've got a whole load of Grands Echazo, Latache is a big vineyard. None of them is, um, uh, apart from Romani Conti itself, is uh, of the reds is as small as their combined Corton is. And then if you divided that even more, it wouldn't really make sense because in their terms of logic of deciding what goes to which marketplace, um, normally the idea is that there is a decent amount of each wine. So that wouldn't happen so much. Okay. Um, Okay, good time. Can I 
as known as Special Premier Cruise. And Julian, your comment about uh, when you say join the DRC style, what does that mean and does it still reflect the course on style? I think what I mean is the fact that it's got this particular profile of the whole bunch vinification. And normally, whenever you go to a winery, um, you feel to an element, um, to a degree, I should say, the style of the house. You don't want it to dominate it. So you don't want it to be so much the style of the house that you can't feel the individual um, vineyards showing. Uh, but um, equally, it's quite nice to have something which is recognizable uh, of, of that producer. Okay, um, we'll come on to the Premier Cruise before we finish, as you all would like us uh, to talk about. But uh, before we do that, uh, we have one more wine. I'm going to gulp down my Romani Conti. Now, if you ask Etienne de Monti, I'm sure he'll say that his wine should definitely be served after Romani Conti. It's even better. But the reason I've held it to last is because it's Claude Duroy, the King's Vineyard, which typically in Burgundy means it used to be the Duke's Vineyard, but when the Duke's finished and the last of them died out, uh, we made a schoolboy error in battle in 1477. Uh, and the French kings took over, well, they took over the ducal lands. And uh, so apart from the Claudet Duke in uh, Volnay, everything became Claudio Roy. So uh, this is um, Etienne de Monti. And so again, we have a high proportion of um, whole bunch vinification in that. So theoretically, this should be the most complete of all courtons. We'll talk, maybe after we've tasted this wine, we should talk about whether or not we think that there is a, an overall style for Corson. I've never really actually tried to address that question before, apart from talking about um, more powerful wines or softer, more delicate wines. Um, but I don't think we have established a fruit profile, um, a shape of the wines, particularly from this range of six different wines. So if we can go back in time, broadly speaking, uh, what I'm going to suggest is that they make a Grand Cru uh, out of um, uh, Corton Charlotte, out of, what am I saying, I beg your pardon, out of Claude Duroy. That gets to be Grand Cru. And then the two things they could have done to that, they could have added in Renard and Bresson and maybe Perrier Grove, maybe not. But they could have made all that one Grand Cru and called it Claude Duroy in the same way that Claude Laroche and Claude Saint-Denis and others have grown from their original bit. Um, I think that's probably what I'd have done. The alternative would have been to say Clédouard is a Grand Cru, Renard is a Grand Cru, Bresson is a Grand Cru. Uh, and then you can spend happy hours um, deciding which of the others probably do or probably don't qualify. Right, so Mr. DeMonti with his um, Californian of Italian extraction, um, cellar master, technical director, Bran Sieve, at the help, but it's, it's Etienne who sort of decides what the style is going to be. Mm. That's a pretty smart wine. It's got an extra sweetness, not in a pejorative sense, but a richness to the fruit in the front end of the palate before the stems deliver a much more peppery, white pepper finish later on. 
and they rein it in. But you've got a density and a volume of fruit without it being in any way over the top. Um, hmm. So this is a strong limestone uh, vineyard, much more limestone uh, than it is uh, clay. Um, hmm. And I think you can also taste that in the sort of nervous intensity of this wine. But it's, it's attractively full bodied as well. While we think about that, and if you have any other questions, which Premier Cruise do I like the best? And uh, well, part of the answer is that everything has been a little bit over-promoted. Um, so, for example, my favourite Premier Cru and Pernod Vergeles isn't part of the Courtance, it's over here at the Ile de Vergeles. Um, I have had... Uh, uh, I've had some quite nice wines from around here. I had a really nice La Coutière, but it's a white wine um, from Capitaine Gagnereau, who are, uh, is a domain that's under the, under the radar. Um, because Corton's been a bit out of fashion, you actually have got quite a few pretty smart um, uh, domains here making consistently good wine that people don't think enough about. Um, uh, I'll actually maybe add that in now. So over in Pernod Vergeles, just off screen, You've got Remy Rollin, um, uh, probably better in whites than reds, but, but very good. Uh, Rappe, extremely good in both colors, probably give the tip to the red over the white. Um, Dubreuil Fontaine, some lovely red wines, which uh, age very nicely, um, as well as, of course, uh, Bonnet du Martre. And then down in Ladois, poor old forgotten Ladois, Dr. Laval, when he wrote his book, which is such an encyclopedia for the time, 1855, about the Vineyards of Burgundy, he goes into all the villages in a lot of detail, apart from Ladois, who, where he basically says, why do they bother? Uh, but you've got the main Michel Malard, which are making pretty smart wines. Uh, Capitaine Gagnereau, which goes totally under the radar because it's called Maison, even though it's entirely domaine, and because it's really old-fashioned labels that look as though the wines must be rustic. And also uh, it's in Ladois, so people, people don't get there. Uh, but they're well worth looking at. Uh, in between, I seem to have skipped uh, Alors Corton, uh, so you've got uh, Domaine Senard there, the Domaine Bruno Collin, no relation to the Chassin Morachet Bruno Collin. You have got uh, Franck uh, Follin Arbelet, uh, whose wines are really quite elegant and stylish, and Remy Poiseau, his cousin, I think, uh, also, and they share a lot of the same vineyards. Um, oh, should I get to the stage, and I'm sure that I'm missing, um, uh, missing people. Um, one of the lesser Grand Cru's, where actually I'm quite impressed, it's partly Grand Cru and partly Premier Cru, uh, is Les Marichaud uh, uh, down here. Bichot make a very nice uh, Claudia Marichaud, uh, and also ex um, Prince de Marode, the Chateau de, de Massa uh, uh, Marichaud, they just started, I think, in either 17 or 18, uh, is, is pretty, pretty good. Um, but uh, Velozier can be nice. Some of the adults Premier Cruise, you are just getting too many tannin, tannins, uh, but that, that should be um, should be getting better with the um, higher uh, warmth and um, sunshine that we've got at the moment. I'm maybe not going to recommend vineyards called Les Citernes and Les Crapousets, um, but uh, it wasn't me who named them in the first place. Uh, right. Let me just check how we're doing on timing. Um, so we're getting towards uh, close of play. Uh, let's just check what uh, other uh, chats and questions you've got. 
Um, Paul, you like to ask your questions late and they're always taxing questions. Uh, ultimately, in my greatest experiences, preferences with the best Volnay rather than Corton. There's absolutely no question about it with the best Volnay. Uh, I have had a number of Cortons that I've enjoyed. Uh, I don't know if you were here with us for an earlier Zoom when uh, we had uh, a Tolobo Corton, one of the reasons I didn't put them in this time um, because we had them earlier. Uh, and it turned out that Natalie Tolo was part of the team listening in. And so she came up and, and said hello. And I talked about a lunch when we drank some uh, uh, old Cortons from Tolobo from the 30s and 40s. Um, so sure, I've had plenty of, of, of very lovely bottles, um, but my heart is in Volnay. So, um, and Sandra wants to know how long the Grand Cru whites from good producers in this area will last. Is 20 years reasonable? Absolutely, and more. Uh, Coton Charlemagne has got extremely good uh, staying power. Um, I did a tasting of 1993 vintage, which a Danish journalist, <coughs> Danish journalist who happens to have a house in the same village as us, put on so at the 20 year stage. Uh, and what we found was that the wines which were round there in the um, Pernambuco-Vergeles, Alors Corton, the really real Corton Charlemagne parts, went on tasting that Corton Charlemagne and getting better and better. The wines which were grown in what is more typically a Corton part, but were still white and so therefore could be called Corton Charlemagne, but are more in the east facing area. They were still very good after 20 years, but they had changed character. You got less of the stony mineral classic Corton Charlemagne feeling. And frankly, they tasted like uh, white Cortons rather than like Corton Charlemagne. Are you ready? Um, Sophie, if you're tucked away behind. Uh, it's me, I'm afraid. I'm less glamorous than Sophie, but uh, I'll have to do, I'm afraid. But I'm ready to go if you're ready to go. All right, but I've got another one. You, if, uh, are you, um, um, sorry, that's a very rude way I was about to express it. Can you set another poll afterwards saying, based on this evening's wines, I think Corton should be Grand Cru? Okay, I, I will do my best. Have a go, put up the other one and, and <laughs> while, while, we, while we play with the other one. And uh, would you like to vote as well, Jasper? Yeah, sure, why not? Okay. I'm not sure I should be able to. You know, we've said all along that the, um, the host and panellists can't vote, but we've discovered that they can if we tweak the button. So uh, I'm going to add my two votes, uh, if I can. Um, my two. How are you doing? Everybody had a chance to vote? It tells me that 28 of people, 28% of people that are watching have voted, now 30%. When uh, not everybody is going to have the wines to play yeah. with. So that's probably everybody. So are you ready for okay. the results? Five, four, three, <laughs> two, one. And oh dear, null point for Chandon de Briaille. 13 for Louis Jadot. Uh, I like that wine, but it wasn't quite one of my favorites. Joint bronze medal to Favely and Mayu Camusay, and uh, one of those got my vote, and I was really struggling to choose between them. In the silver medal position, Domaine La Romani Conti. Um, uh, and they were actually quite skillful when they started this whole program. They said, if we got some course on, we're going to price it between the Echisseau and the Grands Echisseau, or maybe between the Grands Echisseau and the Romani Saint Vivo. And then they priced uh, the Echisseau, but they were, they were just sort of you know, letting us know that it wasn't going to be given away. 
Uh, and then Domaine de Monti, uh, which I thought uh, was a very good wine, comes out on top. So um, thank you for your votes, everybody. And now also, uh, have you got the... I think we might have to do that verbally in the chat box, I think, Jasper. Uh, okay, sure. That's not a problem. We've got a couple. So just chat and say whether you think, on the whole, the wines tonight, majority of them vote, uh, were, were Grand Cru standard or not. Uh, Stuart, I'm trying to think. Uh, Chandon de Briay actually worked with a number of different people, I think. I know that Charles Taylor, who to the public sells as Morrissey wines, he would certainly have it. Uh, not sure who else does. Right, we have a no, and another no, and a not, and a no. Five and six, uh, obviously thinks yes, 50-50 from Paul Day. I mean, what we have to be careful to do is not to uh, bad mouth to talk down Corton because it's called Grand Cru and you think it doesn't merit it. We just have to look at the wines as wines and also at what price uh, uh, they're at. And um, yeah. Uh, Stuart says, could you what? Yes. And uh, I mean, that's, that's sort of my feeling too. And maybe a couple of other vineyards alongside. It's hard to come up with a definite definition of what Grand Cru is, but you sort of know it when you taste it. Um, but um, Alistair, they, uh, they aren't cheap, cheap, but equally, um, most of them, they, they don't tend to go up much in the secondary marketplace. So um, I doubt if many of these would have been... Um, north of £100 retail, or some of them about that. But, you know, you're not getting up into the, the 500s and north. Um, yeah, anyone who's got information on that, like Julian has just put up for the De Monti. Uh, you know, that was, that was, for most people, the best wine that's a tasting, and well under £100. So, you know, Burgundy is not cheap. I did say, I have been saying for a time when people ask me what, what will it take to bring pricing down, I said it's not going to happen unless we have a disaster like, a, I don't know, a, some international crisis, a pandemic or something. Look what happened, but still. Yes, the, the DRC wine is very much more. Great. Um, when should we meet again, Ronan? When, does yes, it... well, when are you back with us? Do you know what's next on the agenda? Well, I do actually, because my samples have already arrived. It's on Monday. Ah, yes. Yeah. It's the 2014 vintage again, but it's white wine. So one each from, uh, uh, from different villages. So we can really get to grips with what we think is, I've got a Chablis from Drouin, uh, Puy Frise from Chateau de Beauregard, their sort of grand one called Grand Beauregard. Uh, Coffinet Duvenet, which will be interesting because he's not all that, they are not all that well known. A Caillere from Chassin Maraschet. Thomas Moret, uh, Moret Pilini Maraschet La Truffière. Uh, that will be worth the admission price. De Monti is back with his white, uh, Marcelle Perrière, and Favely are back with their Coton Charmaine from just above where the red came from. So that, I think, is going to be excellent. Um, and then after that, we will, we've got the Alicote Fest towards the end of the month, and we've got 2010 Red Burgundies as well. And uh, I need to start setting the themes for the month of September. Fantastic. In. Well, Tell your friends. It'd be great to get audiences uh, building again because obviously we don't have quite the same uh, people that uh, we, we had right at the start when everybody was fully locked down. Uh, Baron has done extremely well getting 12 of the Louis Jadot Corton Pujo for £433 at the outset. Wow. 
Good, good. Well, I may be out picking a bit in the next few days. At least I should be going around seeing seeing uh, what's going on in the vineyards, and I'll be able to report back each time we meet. But um, thank you, Ronan. Thank uh, you, Jasper. And uh, we'll see you, see you next week. Yeah, have a great weekend, and we'll see you Monday. We'll do. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.